0: preaching to Hitler. They supported Nazism and they supported the persecution of Jews, including supporting what was called came to be called Kristallnacht, which was the uh, November 9th, 1938 um, what would you call it? Uh, just a, a, an explosion of anti-Semitism that just saw 600 synagogues destroyed, 7,500 Uh, Jewish shops uh, looted and destroyed, and 35,000 Jews arrested all in one night. Bonhoeffer openly opposed Nazism and Hitler, and he spoke out against the persecution of Jews. He spoke against the compromised church in Germany. He spoke against Germans who supported Hitler's treatment of the Jews and against those who just didn't do anything. Bonhoeffer started an illegal seminary in Germany where he taught believers about Jesus Christ as Lord over the church and that Jesus calls his people to costly obedience. All this, it's not surprising, got Bonhoeffer in trouble. Bonhoeffer's friends urged him to leave Germany so that he could avoid arrest and likely execution. He reluctantly decided to do that and left for America in June of 1939, uh, intending to stay for a year. After only a month, he returned to Germany, saying this. He said, I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. He returned, and he continued to speak against Hitler and against Nazism, even involved himself in covert activities such as smuggling Jews out of Germany and he became involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. In April 1943 he was arrested and he was sent to the Tegel military prison. In our passage today the author exhorts believers to hold fast our confession. We'll talk about more about what that means later but I would submit to you that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a high example of holding fast. To our confession. The author of Hebrews says that we should hold fast since we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. Let's read the passage this morning, Hebrews 4:14 4, 4, through 5:10. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in, in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We'll look today at the passage about what the author says about earthly high priest, we're going to then look at what he says about Jesus as our high priest, and then we'll look at how the author exhorts us to hold fast and to approach. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts to your word to help us to see the benefits that we have because of Jesus as our high priest and what you have offered us and what you give to us because of what Jesus did. So open our hearts, Lord, to that, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's talk about earthly high priests. First thing I want to talk about is that earthly high priests were connected in weakness. Hebrews 5, 1 and 2. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the it sits. he himself is beset with weakness. So the high priest was taken from among the people, as the passage said, and of course what that meant was that he was one of them. He wasn't taken from some elitist political class based on influence and power. And while Jewish high priests were to come from the line of Aaron and from the tribe of Levi, it wasn't very long into Israel's history before high priests were connected in power. But they were intended to be connected in another way that is, in weakness, in sin. Jewish high priests were sinners, just like everyone that came, came to them to offer sacrifices. They could deal in gentleness and compassion with the folks who came to them. They could understand what they were going through, especially in their propensity to sin. The author presents this as a positive thing. The high priest understood what his people were dealing with, because he dealt with it too. <coughs> the high priest was subject to temptation. And he was subject to sin. The high priest was as weak as the people he served. Now, of course, this didn't prevent many Jewish priests and high priests from becoming the opposite of what they were intended to be. You don't have to look very far to find corrupt Jewish priests and Jewish high priests. Two of Aaron's sons, Aaron was the first high priest, two of his sons who both, one at least, or both could have um, become a high priest, they flaunted their position and offered a sacrifice of incense that God did not direct. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Jewish high priest offered sacrifices. Hebrews 5, 3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Jewish high priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now, there are many kinds of sacrifices. In this passage, the author mentions gifts and sacrifices for sin. Gifts were offerings generally given out of thankfulness to God, and there were many kinds of sacrifices, and many of them overlapped. There were sacrifices for worship, for dedication, for thanksgiving, there are sacrifices while making a contribution, peace offering, sacrifices during feasts, sacrifices for ordination, for poverty, for consecration, sacrifices for healing, but mostly sacrifices were made for sin. The high priest's job was to re- represent the people before God in the offering of sacrifices. The person giving the sacrifice couldn't go directly to God, so the high priest became the go-between, between them and God. The high priest made sacrifice on behalf of the person, and if done correctly, and with the right heart, God would accept the sacrifice as a, what the Bible calls a pleasing aroma, which indicated his pleasure with the sacrifice. Here's one example of how a sacrifice was to be carried out, a sacrifice for sin. Leviticus four, twenty-seven through 31 If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, he realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering of a goat, a female, without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of the blood on the base of the altar." And all its fat he shall remove, and the fat, and the fat that is removed from the peace offerings, uh, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. While the high priest was offering sacrifices for people, he had to make them for himself as well. Because while the high priest could understand people when they are tempted and when they sinned, he was also a sinner, and so he had to make sacrifices for his own sin. When we think about that, we should immediately see a problem with the sacrificial system. The high priest, a sinner, offering sacrifices for sinners. That cannot be enough. And as the author reminds us later, referring to the Day of Atonement in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 For since the law has, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Of it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. <coughs> Earthly high priests were also appointed, Hebrews 5.4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. To be appointed as high priest was an honor. It was a great honor. The position cannot be campaigned for or plotted for. It. But even as I say that, such plotting was done by some who wanted to be high priest. For example, plotting occurred between Annas and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, to keep the high priest position between them, to keep it in the family. Annas had been high priest, but the Romans didn't like him, so they deposed him, but Annas and the family arranged for his son-in-law Caiaphas to take his place. Caiaphas was at was the high priest at one of Christ's trials. And then Christ was taken to Annas as part of the trial. And then when we get to the book of Acts, we find that Annas again holds the position of high priest. While there were good and there were faithful high priests in Israel, many high priests in Israel were corrupt almost from the beginning. This is against God's design, and God hated it. Ezekiel 34, 7-10. Therefore, you shepherds, which is another term for priest, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely my sheep have become prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. High priests may have been been appointed by God, but many high priests disdained that appointment and become corrupt, living a life that took advantage and oppressed the sheep. And then high priests came out of the order of Levi. Now the passage today doesn't mention this, but it is important to note that the priestly line in Israel came and was to come out of the tribe of Levi. The fact that Jewish high priests were Levites is important to the author's discussion. Further, the author is specific about it elsewhere, Hebrews 7.11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Nechizelbeck rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Now, I should say here, from the author's perspective, Jewish high priest, or at least what the Jewish high priest should have been, is commended. I've spent some time talking about high priests who are corrupt, who do not do what they were supposed to do, but the author says that they had value. And if they did what they had been called to do, their ministry would have been beneficial. But it always it was inadequate that leads us to Jesus as our high priest Jesus uh, high priests were connected in weakness Jesus is connected to us in temptation hebrews four fifteen for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows the suffering. Of his people, he knows our suffering in temptation, but he didn't know sin. The author acknowledged that earthly high priests could identify and understand to identify with and understand a person who was tempted and who gave in into that temptation and sinned because the high priest also was tempted and gave in to the temptation and sinned. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. We may be inclined to say or at least raise the question to say that Jesus, <clears throat> since he did not sin, he can't know us or sympathize with us like a high priest could. But that's the author's point. Jesus did not sin, yet he was tempted in every way that we have been tempted. Think about this for a moment. Jesus knows temptation better than we do. He knows temptation deeper than we do. Because he was tempted as far as it was possible to be tempted and not sin. And that way Jesus knows us better than any high priest could. Because no high priest could ever or ever went as far as as it was possible to be tempted but not given to sin. Jesus knows our struggles when we're tempted. And that's the point that the author makes here. When Jesus was tempted near the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness, the devil took him to a high mountain and offered all the kingdoms of the earth to Jesus. That is, the devil offered rulership over everything. Almost everything. The condition was that Jesus would fall down and worship the devil. But the rulership of over everything was one of the reasons that Jesus came. Giving into that t- temptation you might think would have made a little, things a little bit easier for Christ. And he was in, in his weakened state after 40 days of fasting. And all of that might have made uh, that t- temptation seem to be very enticing. But he didn't give in to it. Using the word of God, Jesus overcame the temptation. He resisted sin. He was tempted as far as it was possible to be tempted, but did not sin. Christ did what we often cannot do. He resisted sin. At Gethsemane, Jesus was tempted to not go to the cross. To, as the scripture says, to have this cup pass from him. And I suppose that was a much greater temptation than the one we just spoke about. Jesus asked God three times to remove the cross from him. But Jesus submitted to God's plan, and he resisted that temptation. I think it's safe to say that none of us have or ever will have, face, or ever will face such a temptation, but Jesus did. And he prevailed. He was tempted as far as it was possible to be tempted, and he did not sin. He knows how bad our temptations can get. <clears throat> The word translated sympathize in this verse means to share with or to suffer with. The author uses that same word in Hebrews 10.34. It says, for you had compassion, or some translations will say, for you shared in the sufferings with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Earthly high priests were corrupted by their sin. And often, rather than sympathize with sinners, they sought to take advantage of them to ignore them and to ignore their own sin and only look to themselves like Caiaphas. Earthly high priests were corrupted and would oppress people like the shepherds Ezekiel wrote about. In Jesus' day, the corruption was so bad that the high priest allowed merchants into the temple area during Passover to buy lambs so that people could buy lambs from them for the sacrifice because the lambs that the people brought weren't correct. They weren't good enough. They weren't acceptable. Of course, the merchants would charge these people a good price for the lambs, and a cut would go to the high priest. Jesus shares our suffering in temptation. Jesus is not corrupted by sin, so he can fully understand and be with us when we suffer temptation. And in addition, he gives us resources to resist sin. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, dwelling within each believer, and we can call on the Holy Spirit and on his power to help us resist sin. And other resources, for example, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond, what you, beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. Do you ever realize that every time you're tempted, there's a way out? God provides it. And then Jesus, as our high priest, sacrificed himself. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Earthly high priests performed sacrifices for the people for their sins. Jesus sacrificed himself. It's as if Jesus put himself on the altar of sacrifice. In this passage, it seems clear that it's referring to Jesus when he was in Gethsemane. He prayed, it says, with cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. But wait a minute, Jesus died. So what's the author talking about? God did save Christ from death, from the permanence of death by the resurrection. In fact, that same evening, Jesus prayed something similar before he prayed that the cup would pass from him. In John 17, 5, it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus was anticipating and trusting the Father to resurrect him so that he could join him again in the glory that he had before he came to earth. And then Jesus, looked, looking forward to returning to or excuse me and then Jesus prayed to trust the father while on the cross. Luke 23:46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And having said that, he breathed his last. Jesus trusted God to resurrect him while he was on the cross. The sacrifice, that sacrifice is no one that no earthly high priest could ever perform. The author then says that Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. The author notes that Jesus prayed this while in the flesh, that is, in his humanity. Jesus was, while on earth, was always fully God, and he was always fully human, but while he was suffering, and while he was at Gethsemane, he prayed that prayer out of his humanity. And the author here is not saying that Jesus was somehow disobedient, but in his his humanity, Jesus learned to carry out everything the Father commanded him, including going to the cross. In his humanity, Jesus learned to follow God in everything. Martin Luther said that Christ sunk himself into our flesh. Christ became all that we are, and in doing that obeyed everything the Father called him to do, even death on a cross. We didn't read this verse, but in verse 9 it says that Jesus was perfected. Like the idea that Jesus learned obedience, Jesus was not somehow imperfect. Perfect here means to be complete or to have completed. In Hebrews 2.10, the author says the same thing, that God through Jesus' suffering made him perfect as the founder or the trailblazer of our salvation. The sense of the word there as here is that Jesus was qualified or made completely adequate by what he, by what he did in his sufferings. By offering himself as a sacrifice, the once-for-all perfect sacrifice, Jesus obeyed the Father and by that obedience completed the task perfectly. Jesus, as our high priest, offered the sacrifice of himself to not just deal with our sins for a time, but to deal with them absolutely and permanently so that no other sacrifice would ever be necessary. Unlike the sacrifice of the high priest, it never has to be repeated. Christ's sacrifice was once for all. And then, like high priest, Jesus was appointed. Hebrews 5.5 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. <coughs> Earthly high priests were appointed by God, so was Jesus. However, the appointment of Christ as high priest is of a different quality. The author reminds us in this verse of Psalm 2.7, which he first quoted in Hebrews one five to show that Jesus was greater than angels, and I thought it might be worth looking at the Greek translation of Psalm two one through seven. Don't worry, it's not going to come up in Greek letters; it'll be English. <laughs> but this is the the Bible that the author would have used. So let's read that Psalm two one through seven. Why were the nations unruling? The people meditated on and people meditated on vain things. The Kings of the earth are present, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They say, let us break their bonds, and let us throw your yoke off of us. The one dwelling in the heavens will laugh at them, and the Lord will mock them. At that time he will speak against him in his wrath, and in his anger he will bring trouble on them. But I was appointed by him in Mount Zion, at his holy place, announcing the ordinance of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. This psalm, certainly a messianic psalm, is that the nations of the earth have gathered together. The kings have decided in vain that they're going to rebel against God. They gather against God and against his anointed one. Anointed one here is understood as one who is anointed as king, like David was anointed as king of Israel. All these vain plans of these earth's kings the Lord laughs at and he mocks them and he speaks to them in his wrath and he promises them destruction. Then the psalm quotes this anointed King in verses six and seven, who tells of what the Lord said to him. He was appointed by God announcing that this anointed one was fathered by the Lord, not that he was born, but that he was set up in the highest place in the household of God. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. The appointment of, of Jesus as king, ties, the author ties directly to Jesus' appointment as high priest. And that leads to our next point. Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5.6 and Hebrews 5.10. As he says, also in another place you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews 5.10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews 1.10 and in Hebrews one thirteen, the author quotes Psalm one ten one to again establish the superiority of Christ first over everything and then over angels. Here, the author quotes Psalm one ten four, which the author will quote at least four more times in Hebrews. The author declares that Christ is a high priest, not in the priestly line of Levi, but in the priestly order of Melchizedek. Who's this Melchizedek? Well, he's an enigmatic fellow. He's mentioned a total of ten times in all the scriptures, once in Psalm 10, which we, the author just quoted here. He's mentioned eight times by the author in Hebrews, which indicates how important this is to the author. And Melchizedek is mentioned once in Genesis 14:18, where we see him, where we're introduced to him. This person, this Melchizedek, is important to the author of Hebrews, and we'll certainly be talking a lot more about him in coming sermons. What we'll say now, though, is that Melchizedek is identified in Genesis as a priest-king of the God Most High. Melchizedek is said to be a priest of God and the king of Salem, later to be known as Jerusalem. Melchizedek was before Israel was born as a nation. He was before Moses. He was before the Jews in Egypt were in Egypt. He was before the twelve sons of Jacob were born. And he he was before Isaac was born. Melchizedek's only appearance in the Old Testament there in Genesis is when he blessed Abram, before Abram was Abraham, and when Abram paid him a tenth of all the spoils from the defeat of Abram's enemies. As far as we can tell, the priestly order of Melchizedek had only one member, Melchizedek, until God the Father declared Jesus Christ priest and king. Whatever else this order of high priest is, it is now and for eternity held by Christ. What the author is pointing out is that Jesus Christ is both king and high priest, and he is both our king and our high priest. So what does this all mean? Let's consider a couple of things. First of all, let's consider eternal salvation, Hebrews 5.9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for any who obey. The obvious question then is, what do I need to do to obey? That same question is said in a slightly different form and asked at least twice in at least two other places in the New Testament. Once it was asked by the jailer in Philippi of Paul and Silas. After an earthquake shook the prison Paul and Silas were in, and, and it was threatening to let all the prisoners go. This caused the jailer to want to kill himself. He saw no other way out. This is how it takes place in Acts 16. Paul heard, and heard this, and Paul went to the jail and said, No, wait, don't kill yourself. And so then the jailer asked Paul what he must do to be saved. He said, Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus. The second time this question was asked was after Jesus had been talking to the crowds about eternal life, and not very long after he fed the 5,000. Some people came to Jesus and and asked him what they must do to do the works of God. This is in John 16. Jesus replied, believe in the one whom God sent, meaning believe in Jesus. Folks didn't believe. They didn't get what Jesus was saying. In fact, they asked him after that, they said, well, show us some proof. Do some sign or miracle to prove. So that we, they would believe. They weren't interested in belief. They were interested in food. Obeying God is believing in him. Trusting Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation because he died to pay for your sins in your place on the cross and by, be, and by being resurrected from the dead and who is now sitting at the right hand of God on the throne of grace so that by believing you might receive his grace and receive eternal salvation. I have to say here that um, if you're not sure about your relationship with God, if you're not sure about your relationship with Christ, Christ, if you're not sure whether or not you have obeyed Christ, I'd sure like you to talk with me. Talk with Caleb, and we can help you see what all that means. Secondly, we can approach boldly. Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is able to understand and because he knows our struggles with temptation, even the temptation where we might think that walking away or, or going away or drawing back is an easier path, we can rather come to the throne, Christ's throne, at the right hand of God, the throne of grace, to receive grace and mercy and help. We've already said that we can come to Jesus when we struggle with temptation and when we fail. This verse says that in those times and at all times, we can come to receive Christ's grace and his mercy and his help. And it says we can approach boldly. So, boldly approach Christ's throne of grace. He wants you to come there. He wants to see you. He wants to hear you. He wants to help you. Sometimes, I think, rather than approach boldly, we really don't approach at all. I think you know what this is like. You run into financial problems, perhaps your furnace breaks down, perhaps you get into conflict with a family member, perhaps you get reprimanded at your job, or you lose your job, or you get a debilitating illness, or perhaps a life-threatening illness, or perhaps you are ridiculed for your faith. In these and many other circumstances, you, when you get into trouble or you become troubled, And you try to reason your way out of it. Or maybe you panic. Or you pretend the problem isn't there, but you do almost nothing. You do almost anything but go to the throne of grace. I can think of many times in my life that out of a need of mercy and out of help that I came to the throne of Christ. Although I'm not sure how bold I was. It might be more accurate to say that I approached out of desperation. But even so... I can tell you that I did receive mercy and that I did receive help. And unexpectedly, I received patience and peace. It didn't mean the problem magically went away. But when I really approached Christ's throne and I asked for his help, the peace came, and I knew he was going to deal with it. I'm slowly learning that I can come to the throne before I get desperate and with boldness, because Jesus said I can He wants to give me mercy and he wants to give me help and he wants to give me grace and he wants to give you all of those things as well. Perhaps we can approach in the way John Wesley suggested. He said, storm the throne of grace and persevere therein and mercy will come down. And finally, hold fast. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Holding fast our confession is the author's main concern in this sermon that he wrote to his people. I've been a believer since just just before I turned 19, and I can look back and I can see that I've gone through different stages of faith, and the, the opportunity and the challenges, opportunities and challenges have been different in different parts of my life. And I find myself today seeing my faith strengthened, and I see myself being challenged even more to hold fast. Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross and by the resurrection, has passed through the heavens. That is, Jesus has forged that path to the heaven through the heavens. He's forged that path to God. What we, in another sermon called, that Jesus is our trailblazer. He made the path for us to follow. And he made that path, the only path, so that we can with confidence hold fast our confession, our declaration, and our commitment that we have believed and put our faith in Christ, and look to no other. There is no other. When Jesus, after a particularly hard time, when there were a lot of people following him, and because of what he said, a lot of those people fell away from him. They went away, they stopped following him. Jesus looked at his twelve disciples and he said, Are you going to leave me too? Peter, as spokesman, as he usually was, stood up and he said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? There is no other. Dr. George Guthrie in his letter to the Hebrews said this. His letter, his commentary to the Hebrews, on Hebrews. He said, holding fast to confession for us means hanging on to the gospel, taking a bold public stand for Christ. Doesn't mean that we're all going to be extroverts that are out there preaching on the street, but it does mean... That were going to stand with the people of faith. That were going to be people who continue to identify with the gospel and the church and with our Lord Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, while he was in prison, continued to hold fast his confession. And he spent his time there, I'm sure, in prayer, but he spent most of his time there ministering to other prisoners and to guards. He was so well liked that guards would pay one another to trade shifts so they could spend time with Dietrich. In February 1945, Bonhoeffer was transferred to the Buchenwald Concentration Camp. That's Buchenwald. And on April 3rd, he and some others were sent to the Flossenburg Extermination Camp to be hanged. All the way up to the very evening before he was to be executed, Bonhoeffer was ministering to guards and to prisoners. The doctor, who was required to witness the hangings, said this about Bonhoeffer. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive, to the will of God. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, The messengers of Jesus will be hated till the end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. Sound familiar? The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord, but the end is also near, and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. The Apostle John, in that vein, wrote in Revelation about believers, about those who have persevered. In Revelation twelve ten and 11, he says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even until death. They conquered by the blood of the Lamb, that is, they believed in Jesus, and they believed in the sacrifice that he offered for themselves. And they conquered by the word of their testimony. They simply said, I'm a follower of Christ. Would you like to be a follower of Christ too? And they conquered because they loved not their lives even to death. They counted Christ and they counted the gospel as more important than even their own lives. They were holding fast. Let's pray. Father God, may we be people who hold fast. Jesus, you are on the throne. You're on the throne as our king, and you're on the throne as our high priest. And because you've done that, because you're there, because you died for us, <clears throat> because you suffered for us, and because you were resurrected, you are there, and you are. it's like you're holding your hands out, calling us to come to the throne when we need grace, and when we need mercy, and when we need help. And we need grace and mercy and help a whole lot. May we be those who hold fast to our confession. May we be those, Lord, who... Come to your throne. Thank you for being our high priest. In Jesus' name, amen.